today we're carrying on our series that we started last week called The Big Objections, uh, which we are looking at eight, or perhaps, of the biggest objections that generally people have when it comes to the Christian faith. I was an atheist for most of my life, up to the age of 20. Many of the objections that we're going to be looking at and are looking at, I had. And I'm full of the deepest sympathy uh, for people who perhaps, you know, might think about Christianity, but would actually have some serious objections because of the things that we're looking at. And as a church, over the last few years, I think it's true to say one of the biggest things God's done in our hearts is actually really care about people, um, people who might not share our faith and not share our same perspective on life, to actually really care, and not just to think, oh, I hope that they, you know, have a nice life. But to actually, as it says in the Bible, to have a reason for your faith, to actually be able to use your mind. As a church, we're quite high on the emotions. Yeah, we like the emotions, we like the heart. Ooh, I like to feel good. But actually, also to have our minds equipped. So you can show, to quote C.S. Lewis, the reasonableness. The reason, it's, it's a reasonable thing to believe Christianity. It's really key that we have that. And I just want to also say, if you're here perhaps because of this series, you are so, so welcome and I hope that you're enjoying things so far. And I trust that today as we look at our second topic, which is that small issue of how could an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God allow so much suffering? That's that small question. I, I, I trust and pray that as we look at this massive, massive objection, I, I trust and pray that it will be helpful in some way. In fact, I think personally, maybe this is the biggest one. I don't know what you think. But I think it might be the big one. In fact, for me, I think... Um, if I wasn't a Christian, I think this would be the, the reason why I wouldn't be this one. It's just so... And I think one of the reasons it's so huge is because it combines a logical objection with an emotional one. Many of the objections that we're looking at are one or the other. They're mainly emotion-based or logic-based. This one, as we'll see in a minute, really combines both. So it's a huge, huge, huge thing. And I don't know if any of you have been following the news recently, just in the last few days, and seeing the extraordinary events surrounding Stephen Fry, who's one of the most loved men. I think he's, in many ways, a brilliant guy, so lovable, but he's made some comments um, very publicly about the Christian faith, and the interviewer asked him, he's a very well-known atheist, and the interviewer said, what would you say to God if you were to, when you were to meet him? And immediately he said, I would say to God this, cancer in children? Tell me about that, God. How could you allow that? And uh, the guy who was interviewing, I think was a Christian, I'm not entirely sure, I think he was. And there was this, you know, real depth of anger and fury at God. And um, I'm, I've been told that, uh, that over a million um, articles have been written since he made those comments just a, a week or so ago. It's extraordinary. It's created this massive discussion because it's such a raw nerve, isn't it? I, you know, it really is. You know, Russell Brand, interesting guy. He, he's done a very interesting response to it, um, defending God, interestingly, saying that actually he doesn't think that, um, that you have to conclude, as um, Stephen Fry is doing, that because of suffering, you can't believe in God. And we'll look at not so much Russell Brand's comments, but it's all I'm trying to say, it's a massive issue anyway, but it's right now really, really huge, isn't it? So I'm going to pray, and you can join with me, because these are big things, and I'm very limited in my ability to, to help, but I, I'm trusting that God will help us. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are a God who cares. You really are. And um, I just want to pray for your peace over this room. I pray for your peace. Troubled hearts would know your peace. We love you. Amen.
So I'm just going to do three things today. First of all, I want to kind of give really what I, I guess you'd call is a short answer to this huge objection. Then secondarily, I want to almost unpack a little bit of what this logical aspect of this objection is and give something of a response to that logic side of it. And then thirdly, I want to look at the emotional side of this objection and give something of a response. Hopefully you can, you can kind of see that. Um, okay, so first of all then, what is this short answer? What, is, what as Christians um, do we need to, I think, be ready to say? What do Christians say? I think the first answer is when, when we look at the unbelievable amount of pain and suffering and horror that is happening all the time in this world, I think the very simple but often most difficult thing that we need to say as Christians is this. Why is it happening? How could God allow this? We don't know. We simply don't know. And I think that, you know, it sounds so obvious, but actually being ready to be humble enough to say, there are some times, as we'll look in a moment, where you can have something of an idea of why. But fundamentally, fundamentally why children die at such a young age, why awful abuse occurs, why all around this world there are atrocities off the scale, why that's happening, I think we have to first of all start by saying again and again and be ready to say it as Christians, actually, we don't know. We don't know. And I think this is so important because I think that there is a fundamental, um, I think, wrong search for a kind of singular answer that if we can just discover this one answer, that it will, that it will be the answer to every single issue of suffering. And I think Christians try to do this sometimes, I'm sure from well-meaning intentions, but they'll try and almost give a, what is effectively a bit of a trite answer, a kind of neat reason why all suffering happens. And I just don't think it's helpful. I think, for example, sometimes people will say the reason that all suffering occurs is because that humans have free will. They have free choice. And therefore, they make decisions because God's given them free will, and that causes hurt and difficulties and, and things to go wrong. And therefore, that's why all human suffering occurs. And I think it's true to say that some suffering, maybe much suffering that occurs, is a result of the freedom that we have as humans. But I just don't think you can say that is the reason why all suffering occurs. It's some of it, absolutely, but not all of it. I think secondarily, a second reason why uh, that people try and give, a very neat reason that all suffering exists is because of <laughs> the physical laws of this universe. That we live in a physical universe with physical laws. So for example, silly example, gravity, if you jump off a building, you're going to hurt your legs at the very least and you're going to suffer. And that some would say, actually, the reason that all suffering exists because we live in a physical universe where there are physical laws, and therefore it's absolutely inevitable, therefore, that suffering will occur. Again, of course, I think there's some truth to this, isn't there? There's some truth that logically this is why things happen, physical things, physical laws. But the reality is all physical laws are actually, they're, con they're constant. And yet there is this extraordinary, uneven nature to the pattern of suffering and evil and difficulty. So you can't say it's only because of that the physical law aspect. Some would say it's because God is preparing people and their souls and developing character in them for eternity. And of course, this is biblically true, that sometimes suffering is directly allowed for God to develop character in people that through that difficult time that God is wanting to do that. 
I don't think it's true to say that's always the, the reason for every single type of suffering. You know, there's some people who are incredibly immature, and, and yet they never seem to suffer. You know, there's never any suffering that God gives them, as it were, for them to develop their character. It's just true. And then there's other people who have the most incredibly mature character, who are amazingly godly, and yet they just seem to go from one horrendous, awful thing to another. So you can't, I don't think you can just say that's the only reason. It sometimes is the reason that God does allow, often perhaps, suffering to develop internal godliness, but it's not the only reason. I think a fourth reason that sometimes we can give, which is only partly true, is we can sometimes say all suffering is because of sin. And obviously, sometimes sin in us can lead to us even bring it upon ourselves, sin on ourselves, or even we can sin against others and create suffering in them. It's definitely often true that sin can be the result of suffering. But again, I don't think it's always the case. When you look at the case of the amount of people who have cancer or awful diseases, you can't say that suffering is because of sin in them. That because they've sinned, they're now there. You can't say that. So I think that we have to understand that actually... A singular kind of neat answer is unhelpful. I just don't think it actually goes anywhere to explaining the vastness of the pain and the evil and the suffering and the scope of agony that this world is going through. I just don't think that's true. And the scriptures, if you're unfamiliar with them or fairly familiar with them, they are amazing. They are rich, extraordinary, meaty things that give amazing aspects and insights on who God is and the nature of evil and the nature of difficulties. But I think that they actually, they, they even warn against at times, giving a kind of neat instinctive trite answer for what suffering is about. You have to read the book of Job right in the middle, this huge book all about suffering and this amazingly godly man. And it's, it's a heartbreaking book because he goes through a living hell. He leaves his entire family and everything. And the one point of the book, if you just don't get any other point, is don't be like his friends who start reeling out these reasons why suffering's going on. They're just like little robots. And it's agonizing for the guy. And at the end of it, it's basically a book which says you have to embrace a certain level of mystery. We don't know. God is God and we're not. And I think that's really important for Christians to, 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 to appraise, is actually to humbly say, I don't know why your child's died. I don't know why your wife has left you. I don't know why that awful, awful thing has happened to you. I'm so, so sorry. I think that's really powerful. I think it's a really humble and honest biblical position to say, sometimes it's because of one of those four reasons. But it's not always. But I think for us to admit that, and for me even to say it, it's a huge step because it can feel like a concession, can't it? It can feel like you're almost saying, We've, you know, we don't know an answer and therefore God's not real. And, and that's not what we're saying. I just think it's honestly true. Oh, for a church which has the courage to actually be able to say that and for us to say that at times, often. But what I want to do is show, actually, through looking at then the logical aspect of this and then the emotional aspect, why it's not a defeat to say... Although ultimately we don't know why God does allow much of the suffering, that I first of all want to show that the kind of logical side of the objection doesn't need to stack up. And also that the emotional side of it, the emotional objection, actually, that the God of the Bible is a God of profound comfort. 
So let me explain what I mean. So for many people, for some people, the reason that they think because they're suffering, there can't be a loving God. It's the sort of logical progression is a bit like this. So if we, um, if we just jump over to the next page. Okay, go back, sorry. I'm not great on PowerPoint, it's my fault. Okay, now you see A, okay? Follow with me. This is the first very simple little step to follow through. An all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God would not permit suffering, okay? That's the, f- the first step of many people who would approach this. Secondarily, suffering exists. Therefore, thirdly, it should say C, but I mistyped it. Therefore, don't get distracted by that. I'm not strong. Therefore, I'm a jar of clay. Therefore, an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God cannot exist. Okay? That's the simplified, simple logic base that for, for so many of us is very compelling, isn't it? It makes you feel like, yeah, this has got to be true, right? An all-loving, all-powerful God couldn't possibly allow suffering, but suffering does exist. And therefore, thank you, amazing. Um, oh, done. Um, God can't exist. But... This is where we have to, we'll get to the emotional side of it in a moment, but this is using our minds. This is actually helping people who operate mainly by logic to realize there is a huge problem actually with that logical progression. And it's this first part here is that there's actually a huge assumption behind that A, behind that first point, which is this. And this is why I'm told actually even people who, who kind of, um, who, who de- deliberately, as it were, um, specialize in, in logic and philosophers, many of them wouldn't actually back up or, or um, support this particular threefold progression because that first point, there's a very huge assumption that, they're, that, they're, they're, that, they're, that if there was a reason why an all-loving or powerful God would allow suffering, then we would know it. But actually, logically, you cannot substantiate the fact that there could be a reason. Hidden in that first assumption is the assumption that if God's all-loving and all-powerful, therefore, he wouldn't allow suffering. And hidden within that is the assumption that there, that there couldn't be a reason why an all-loving God would allow suffering because we can't actually think of that reason and therefore there can't be a reason. So let me show you actually what this is really saying. Our next slide, I've just explained the next one, is this. Really what that first logical progression actually is saying is this. An all-loving, all-knowing and all-powerful God would not permit suffering without a good reason. That's actually what we're saying when we believe that first thing. And I, have, I completely agree. It wouldn't make sense, would it, logically, to have an all-loving, all-kind, all-powerful God who would allow awful suffering unless he had a good reason for it. Second thing is, I can't think of a good reason why he would allow it. Now, this is the massive point. If you're going to tune out at any point, tune in now. That third point is the next step where everything hinges. Because I can't think of a good reason why an all-loving God would allow suffering, therefore there isn't one. And therefore, number four, because suffering exists, number five, therefore an all-loving, knowing, and powerful God cannot exist. Now this is where us Westerners, Western Europeans, who take that third perspective, differ hugely from people who have lived for, m- for many thousands of years and, in fact, the majority of the, other, of the other part of the world. Let me explain. You see, 
You see, most people in the world would say, well, if there is an all-loving, all-powerful God, and I'm clearly a human who is not all-loving and all-powerful, then actually, it's logically very likely that he might have a reason for allowing the suffering, which, because I'm limited, I couldn't know. Does that make sense? It's, they, they would actually say, it doesn't make sense with point three to say, therefore, it isn't one. And actually, our culture, really, in the last couple of hundred years, particularly influenced by the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, has basically come to this, I think, arrogant assumption in the Western Europe, which is this. If God is real, then actually we would sort of get him. We would be able to understand the mind of God. That the things of God, we would, of course, be able to get our heads around. That's the underlying air that we breathe, right, in this culture. It's the assumption that if God is real, then he's, uh, he's intelligible, and we can understand everything about the mind of God. And that's why we come to that conclusion. I can't think of a good reason why a loving God would allow suffering, therefore there can't be one. Does that make sense? But it's very, very different to how actually the majority of the rest of the world, historically and even present tense, addresses this issue of suffering and a good God. Because actually, the rest of the world, which is, has a different cultural mindset to us, would approach things more like this. Next slide. Look, first step is the same. An all-loving, all-powerful, knowing God would not permit suffering without a good reason. Number two, I can't think of a good reason. Look at the difference. Number three, my knowledge, however, is limited. What was the equivalent? The three for the Westerners? It was, therefore, there can't be one. Whereas the humble attitude of the majority of the world around us, actually, outside of Western Europe, would actually say, my, my knowledge is limited. I have a limit to what I can know. And therefore, number four, suffering exists. Number five, though, this is a mystery. Did you see the huge difference there in that logic progression? At that absolutely vital moment, you either say, there can't be a reason because I can't think of it, and therefore it's absolutely logically impossible for an all-loving God to exist with the amount of suffering. Or you actually say, but my ability to know everything, to know reasons, is so limited. It is absolutely possible. The God of unimaginable goodness and love, in his mystery, somehow, for some reason, does allow it, and I just don't know why. And you see, that is, that's why C.S. Lewis, interestingly, he observed that all the religions of the world had emerged, he described, he said, all the religions of the world have emerged from places without chlorophyll. And what he means is chlorophyll is that thing you put over your mouth, which basically makes you all sleepy and takes away pain. And what he's saying is that in the West where we are, Western Europe, compared with the rest of the world and compared with the rest of history, we've had a very closeted comfortable existence. So there's some level of suffering, of course, but compared with the horrors of the last several thousand years, the brutality of ages gone by, and when you look around the rest of the world, actually, places where there is no chlorophyll, interestingly, though, that's where religion has come from. Why is it in places where there's more suffering that hasn't stopped them believing in God? It's actually led to them believing in God. It's because of this reason. It's because their framework for actually viewing life uh, point three is, is very different to how we tend to view things. I think it is the difference actually between arrogance and humility. I think an arrogant heart tends to think, if there's a reason, I would definitely know it, and I can't think of a reason, and therefore God can't exist. Whereas actually, logically, we'll get to the emotional side of the minute, logically, that doesn't hold up. 
actually logically, it is absolutely as logically plausible to have this line of logic, which I think the rest of the world does take in large measure. It's a little bit like, imagine I'm in my conservatory, and just imagine I had a big dog. Okay, I don't have a dog. But, and Josie said, where's your big dog? Uh, is he in the conservatory? And, um, and I would be able to tell, wouldn't I? I'd be able to, with my eyes, see whether that dog is there or not. I'd know instinctively he's there or not, okay? If she said to me, Tom, is there a tiny, tiny fly, a microscopic fly in the, uh, in the conservatory, a mosquito? I'd go, uh, I don't know. I can't see. Now, no matter how much I hard, no matter how hard I tried to see whether it was there or not, I, I probably wouldn't be able to see it. Now, this is what I'm saying is, as Westerners, we view... The we have the assumption that if, if there was a reason why a good, loving God allowed suffering, that reason would be like a big dog, that we'd be able to see it. Whereas actually, it's entirely logically possible that there is a real reason, but because of our limited ability to see and to understand, we just can't see it. And it's more like trying to look for a tiny fly. So, so interestingly, if you look at the, the Russell Brand response, to Stephen Fry in a rather wild way with crazy eyes and straying into some interesting theology. He kind of makes this sort of point, actually, I think. He's trying to say that the fundamental logic that is so powerful, that logic that seems to be so sort of, how do you respond to it? If God's all loving and there's all this suffering, how can he exist? Actually, that, that logical flow is actually something of a very Western European mindset that ultimately um, it doesn't need to be the kind of end of the argument. Now that said, and you've looked really interested, well done, at this logic lesson today, which is not my strength, but uh, you know, attempting to understand these things. The reality is, actually, for most people, that isn't the reason why that they have a problem with it. I mean, they, that's part of it, but the real reason is an emotional reason, isn't it? It's just, I mean, if you look at Stephen Fry being interviewed, it's just, he sums up really what so many of us feel, it's just when you think about the horror of suffering and evil and pain of this world, it just feels wrong. It just feels horrific. It just feels at a very visceral gut instinct level, something that is absolutely fundamentally wrong. It's not, a, you know, it's almost like, Tom, you can give me all these logical, clever things and that's fine. But ultimately, it just feels very, very wrong, doesn't it? That's actually really, for most people, what's going on. It's an emotional thing. And again, I, I think we just have to keep understanding that admitting it's real, not trying to defend God. He doesn't need us to defend him. He's God. But actually to say, yeah, I, I, I don't know why those awful things have happened in your life. I don't know why the relatively difficult things have happened in my life. Nothing compared with many of you. And no nothing compared with many of the people in the world. I don't know why those difficult things have happened. I wish they hadn't, but they have. And actually, the Bible itself is just bursting with books and, and, and writing where, where people are lamenting, people are crying out in agony to God. From cover to cover, you see it all over the place. The Bible is a book which doesn't pretend everything's fine. It's the exact opposite. It actually profoundly touches touches this hugely universal thing in the depths of everyone's heart, which is, why is there this agony? 
Why is this world like this? Yes, there's beauty and there's amazing things, but why is there this horrific, either small, subtle suffering sometimes, or this gigantic, mind-blowing, horrendous suffering? The Bible, when you read it, I love that about the Bible. It doesn't shy away from it. It doesn't do that. And this is the thing, is that actually, although at many times... The Bible doesn't give an answer. It does sometimes, but it often doesn't. What it does do, as we see, is that the gospel, the news about Jesus, the news about God, it, it does make some sense of it. And what it really does is, even if it doesn't give you an answer, it gives you profound support. Profound support. God doesn't allow us to know why they're suffering, always. But the Christian, the Christian answer, the Christian hope, actually does provide profound mental, emotional comfort as well as physical. And I'm going to invite my friend James up, who's going to share his own story as a Christian of some suffering that he's walked through. Can we welcome James up? It should be on. Can you hear me? Yep, great. Um, Hi, I'm James. on the 8th of June, 2013, um, I got married. Um, for Kerry and I, it was the happiest day of our lives. And then on uh, the 28th of March, 2014, I walked into our flat after getting home from work to find Kerry lying on the sofa. At first, I thought she was asleep, but when I tried to wake her up, there was no response, and I realized she wasn't breathing. I phoned 999, gave CPR as I was instructed down the phone, and the ambulance crew appeared in less than two minutes. As they were defibrillating Kerry and giving chest compressions until they had literally exhausted themselves. I was on the phone to Kerry's parents, I was on the phone to my parents, and I was asking them to pray. Uh, Dave Carter came around at some point during the time as well, um, but I can't remember exactly when. All I know is that Dave was by my side uh, when I was given the news that we'd been dreading. There was nothing that could be done. After an extensive post-mortem procedure, I was told that Kerry had passed away from sudden adult death syndrome. We don't know why or how, but her heart just stopped beating. Even if we'd been on hand with a defibrillator at the exact moment it happened, she still probably would have died. And life as I knew it ended at that moment. The gardeners opened their home to me and let me stay for as long as I needed. Barry and Val Jordan put up my parents, um, who had driven down with Kerry's family, who were hosted by Richard and Gordana Groombridge. They drove down during the middle of the night, and the couple of weeks following Kerry's death remain in my memory as a blur of tiredness, confusion, frustration, and intense emotion. I do remember that Jackie Hopkins and Eddie Taylor organized food to be brought around to my flat when I moved back in, and they made sure there was enough to feed my brother and whoever else I had staying with me. And I, I wanted to say thank you to everybody who cooked food. <laughs> um, the church pulled together incredibly at the funeral. Um, we hired Tyler Hill Village Hall um, for after Kerry's burial. Um, and there was a great host of people at the funeral. Um, and we all went up there and we served afternoon tea um, by a great team, which was Megan Roberts and Christy DeRobeck kind of leading that. And the reason I'm mentioning all these names, um, and apologies if... I, you helped and I've, I've left you out. I am and forever will be grateful for all the support I've received practically um, and prayerfully. Um, recently, a good friend who had no real kind of prior experience of God or the church told me that seeing, seeing the city church pull together um, to take care of me in my hour of need had inspired her to want to join a church uh, where she lives in Essex. 
because of the visible evidence of the love and care of Jesus that was shown to me uh, through this church. The past 11 to 12 months for me have been an incredible journey of learning to trust God, to trust his plans, his timing, and his appropriate grace. It's not been easy. The pain felt by myself and Carrie's family and friends is a continual suffering, seldom expressed, but always felt. Personally, I know that in the hardships, challenges, and confusion of the last year, that God is a constant presence and a support to me. Uh, in the weeks after Kerry died, Ollie Knight wrote these great words um, as part of a song that we dedicated to Kerry. God of all comfort and God of all peace, God through our trials and God in our grief, my rock and my refuge brings rest to my soul. The father of comfort is making me whole. And I'd just like to finish by reading an excerpt uh, from a piece my dad wrote um, in 2008. Um, just through, through his story, um, in 2000, my mum uh, experienced a focal seizure, um, and we were told it was a, a brain tumour grade two, where one is the lowest and, and four is the highest. Uh, primary and non-metastasizing, if you kind of have a medical background and know what that means. Uh, in October 2008, that was upgraded to grade four, so the worst kind um, of tumour that she could have had. Um, she ended up with uh, quite aggressive surgery shortly after that um, and generally has been in remission ever since. Um, so this is something my dad wrote shortly after mum had had this uh, aggressive surgery um, and I really can't articulate uh, this any better than, than he has. God doesn't always work from the human perspective. He works, perhaps unsurprisingly, from the divine perspective. From his eternal perspective, I can honestly say that we need nothing more than we have received from him. If I believe that from the eternal perspective, our present sufferings, illnesses, sadnesses, and weaknesses will be swept away and begin to appear as they really are. Minor, insignificant, perhaps, passing events that last for less than a blink of an eye. If I believe this, and if I can say with the writer to the Romans, I do not consider the sufferings of this present world worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What a huge challenge to believe this, but what an encouragement when we do. If I can believe this, then will it make a difference to Barbara's condition? Perhaps not. Will it make a difference to us and to our sons? I think it might. It just might. Is God good when times are good? Yes, most certainly, and how we love to proclaim his goodness in the times when he showers goodness on us. Is God good when times are not what we would choose to call good? A painful but resounding yes is all we can reply. It's certainly easier to recognize his goodness when times are what we like to call good. But maybe, just maybe, if we can declare that God is good when things aren't going to our plan, maybe then our faith grows most. The frivolous gets stripped away, and we find our place in Abba's, Daddy's, secure arms, firm in the knowledge that he loves us, he cares for us, he holds us for now and for all eternity. And I don't honestly think we'd swap that for the world. Thank you so much, James. I think the emotional objection is so powerful. But the reality is, the stark truth is, if you approach the problem of suffering and therefore conclude that there is no God, atheism, the actual, the reality of approaching suffering from an atheistic point of view is absolutely horrific. It's completely horrific. 
There is, no, there is no right or wrong for the atheist. If you have no absolute God, there is no right or wrong. So you can't say these things that are happening, this suffering that's happening is wrong. You can say it's painful, but you have no comfort from saying it's right or wrong. It's, it's just something that's happening. The atheist worldview provides no shoulder to cry on. It provides no, no hope at all of anything ever changing. It basically just concludes that because there's no God, these awful things happen and people who make these awful at times are responsible for some of these awful things will go unpunished in their life and that's it. The strong eat the weak and we die and that's it. The atheist worldview is absolutely horrific, I think, when it comes to actually emotionally providing any kind of hope for the agony and the suffering in this world. But in contrast to that, Although we have to say we don't, there is a mystery. There is a mystery why much of the suffering occurs. The Christian worldview, as we've just heard, actually, although allows that mystery, at the same time proclaims so much hope, so much emotional support. It starts by saying, well, the first thing is to say that there is good and that there is evil. And that God is good and creation is good, but suffering is awful. The Bible says that there is a moral you know, difference, that things aren't just as they are and there's, you know, everything's relative. It doesn't say that. It says, actually, no, God hates suffering. He doesn't want suffering. And when you're suffering, knowing that God actually hates that which you hate is a massive comfort. That the Christian hope is, is, a, is of a God who didn't just say, I hate suffering, but actually came to this earth, took on human form, and at the cross, he literally took on the suffering, the evil, the pain, the agony of the world on him. That's what Christians actually believe, that this God is so unbelievably committed to diving into the agony of the world that he did that. I mean, that's mind-blowing. That's unique in Christianity. No other, no other religion talks about a God who, who would be so committed to coming to do that, not just to empathize with us, but to provide a way where actually evil could be dealt with. And actually rising from the dead and beginning a new age. Where actually the beginning of a new age where there'll be no more pain and suffering and agony would actually be true. This is why you see, whereas atheism, atheism at first with that logic thing can seem kind of, you know, possible. The actual emotional reality of living in a world of agony and suffering with an emotional, with, with, with an atheistic worldview is absolutely horrific. And the reality is, knowing this God of all comfort, knowing that Jesus, you know, the, you see, we don't know why much suffering occurs. But one thing that as Christians we can absolutely say is that I, I know that it occurs and it's not because God doesn't love me. That is, I, there's no way I conclude that because when I look at the cross of Jesus, when I look at Jesus, God himself on that cross in absolute agony, bearing the evil and the suffering of the world, it is impossible logically and emotionally to conclude that the reason that suffering occurs is because God doesn't love me. That is, to me, absolute deep proof. You know, when you're feeling in suffering, the one thing you want to know, isn't it, is that you're not alone and, and, and that God isn't distant. And actually, in contrast to people who think, well, if God is real, he must be this distant God who's like, well, you know, you've got to sort out the suffering on your own. When you look at the cross, Jesus couldn't have got more involved. He couldn't have dived in any more than he did by going to the cross and taking on all the, the evil and the suffering and the pain and, and all the horror of the result of this world's rebellion against God upon himself. And so actually, we have to realize that as Christians, in a sense... <laughs> We don't have to get God off the hook for suffering. Because at the cross, 
Christ put himself on the hook in the ultimate expression of suffering. That is the unique thing, I think, about Christianity, is that it's about a God who profoundly suffered. He went through a hellish experience at the cross so that you and I could, by scandalous grace, be offered, ultimately, a life other than this one, on the other side of the grave, where we would be free from pain and suffering and discomfort. And that is the the reality of the Christian faith. And I think, although there's mystery, we have to conclude that that is something that is so incredibly emotionally powerful, that it is the Christian faith that doesn't shy away from suffering, but actually says what it is. It is something that God hates, but God has come to this world in order to make a solution for it. He has so empathizes with us. He so knows what it is to suffer. And that, for me, is, is, is very, very profound indeed. And something that, if, I, if I'm honest, I don't think the world generally out there sees. I don't think the world sees, oh, the Christian gospel is a gospel all about a suffering God, a God who completely understands the agony. And he doesn't stand back and go, well, you brought it on yourselves, who dives in and does what no one else could even think of doing, which is taking our pain. And therefore, when he came back from the dead saying, finally, that's dealt with, and you can actually enter into this extraordinary gospel offer. So this is, this is where we finish today. Why? How could a loving God allow suffering? Well, there's the logical response, which I hope is helpful. There's ultimately the emotional response. But in a sense, we kind of finish where we started with. We're saying there is a mystery. There is a mystery. But that isn't meant to lead us into a place of confusion or despair. It's actually, in many ways, to adopt the humble attitude that the majority of this world has had and continues to have which actually allows us not to clumsily dismiss the idea of a loving God because of suffering, but to actually recognize that there are things that are genuinely beyond our ability to understand. And we have to humbly take that view, I think. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you that you are a God who, who comforts those in need. Your word repeatedly says it, and then when we look at Jesus, we are utterly and completely convinced of it and Lord I want to just pray for any here Lord God who um, this has been a particularly uh, difficult thing to hear it's just like oh even 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 when it's you know something that makes sense it's still so hard to hear and I just I just want to almost as it were invite anyone here again to just know their permission to, to express that agony and that anger to you that you're big enough to take it. That God, you're a God who won't be offended when we, in our own raw way, come to you and just say, why? Why? And for some of you, even this morning, you're just sensing that is your, your takeaway. It's just a reminder that you're, you're to go to him with it. You're to go to him. And we have a choice in life as to whether, when the, when the pain comes, either we just, we just conclude he's not there, or, or we actually say, Lord, I've got to come to you in this. I want to, I want to punch you almost. I'm so cross. But Lord, I'm going to come to you in my agony, knowing that where else can I go? You're the only God. You're the only one who can help me. And I pray for, for brave, brave people, men and women here today, who are in a place of real pain. And I just pray that you will give them that courage to go to you with it. The one who almost they might feel has caused the pain or allowed that pain. And I pray, Lord God, you will teach us what it is to have this mindset.
In Jesus' name, amen.